This morning's uh, message is titled Honesty in Worship. Honesty in Worship from Psalm 73. Now this is one of my long-time favourite psalms and when I was in, in college, in seminary, it was actually one of the, the first psalms that I, I really took to in, in depth. I like it because it is very personal and, and one of gut-wrenching honesty. It has a, a, a beautiful flow through it as, as it reveals the heart of man who of this man who almost lost his faith and in the process comes to a new understanding of God and his ways. It voices the questions that sometimes we as believers have all asked at one time or another. Now if it, because we struggle sometimes with this because if the Christian life promises God's blessing then why do many Christians, many believers, struggle so much with their health, their finances and relationships, while many around us who do not believe, uh, many of whom are, in fact, live far away from God, seem to live at ease. And, And some seem to be blessed with tremendous prosperity. Most of us, like the, like the psalmist, have at some point in our lives asked deep questions of our faith and the justice in this world. Many are perhaps even now, while looking at our screens and contemplating all the injustices in our world, thinking of turning away from the Christian faith and saying, well, what is, what is the point? It is that temptation that the author his name is Asaph, um, actually wrestles with. So this is not a psalm of David, but uh, it is in fact, like I said, a psalm of Asaph. Now Asaph is mentioned in the Old Testament as a prophet and a musical composer. He was a, a, a Levite and he was part of King David's worship team, one of his leaders who, who were appointed. And uh, that... They mention him in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 verses 16 to 17. Now he wrote a total of 12 Psalms. Yet in spite of this, in spite of the fact that he came, he was part of the whole temple scripture, the whole part of the worship and praise team of the temple, Asaph is very honest in this Psalm and he says that he almost walked away from God. So let's look at it a little bit closer and hopefully you have, uh, your Bible in front of you, although we'll have the verses, uh, most of the verses in our screens anyway. So first of all, an affirmation in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now this is, is a core doctrinal statement that, that is affirmed by believers all over the world, historically then and today. It affirms Historically, it affirms God's goodness to his people, Israel. It is a reminder of the fact that out of nothing, through God's initiative, that Israel was called into a covenant relationship with himself. The pure in heart. The pure in heart are people whose intentions and commitment, the way they live their life, is to follow God. And 
Many times in this psalm, the human heart is mentioned. The human heart um, is, is actually mentioned six times throughout this psalm. Now, it, it, it all sounds like good theology. But as we read on about his struggles in the psalm, the statement uh, that he says here, that he starts off with in the psalm, seems a little bit detached from where his heart is. It seems a little bit impersonal. He can affirm the, the, the doctrine, but his heart seems to be slipping away, going somewhere else. It's a bit like praying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's biblical, it's true, but in the circumstances in my life, do I really believe that? Do I really own that statement? Is it personal? Now in verses 2 and 3, the envy starts to appear. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The nature of the problem is that he was smitten by the green-eyed monster called envy. Jealousy had snuck in after he was seduced by what he saw with his eyes. And what he saw was wicked people who are prosperous. And in, this, and in this struggle, he focuses on himself and he uses words like I and me and my. And as a result, this, this difficult experience is, is lived out in isolation from the rest of God's people. This is why he says, but as for me, he says, well, God is, God is good, God is good, God is trustworthy, but as for me, So he starts to doubt the goodness and fairness of God and he sees his faith slip and sliding away. So in verses 4 to 9, we have the appearances of freedom, the appearance of freedom. And this is what he says. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. So these verses summarise a lifestyle of self-sufficiency, of affluence. These people appear to have the power and the freedom to really enjoy life. Because they don't have to work too hard. Somebody else is doing the work for them. And morally, these people seem to get away with everything. They seem to have no struggles and are carefree, unconcerned about tomorrow. Their credo is live for now. In fact, they seem like demigods, if you listen to the way they talk. They didn't appear to, to suffer the same struggles of the common man in terms of working hard and, and after you work then you get sick and there's no income and all that stuff. They have ris- disregard for God and his word. They are people of pride, self-importance, And their tongues are an instrument of evil used for putting down the people around them. Wherever they go, they seem to leave a trail of violence as they live at the expense of other people. But in spite of their evil hearts, life just seems to get better and better for them. This is what it appeared like to him. This is why he was 
losing his faith. Now, in verses 10 and 12, we have a description of the worship of success. This is what it says. It says, Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? In other words, does he know what he's doing? If this was an issue back then, it is certainly gone a lot worse in 3,000 years later, hasn't it? Our world is obsessed with the rich and famous, with successful people. The mainstream media reinforces this by, by showing their faces and quoting their words and they constantly getting interviewed by their opinion on this or that. And they're constantly telling us about their lives and their lifestyles. They're showing us pictures, you know, in their private jets and their island paradise. They set the standards for fashion and lifestyle. Some of them are even called influencers. The common person has, has, has almost found a way to replace the worship of God and they start worshipping these people. In spite of everything that comes out of their mouth, in spite of everything and even the ways that they blaspheme against God, they seem to be more and more popular. They're copying them. They're basically coat hangers with the shoes they wear, the clothes they wear, where they go. Now, as you look around, if you are not firmly grounded on God's word, it will be so easy and our generation is so easily seduced by this lifestyle and this appearance of material success and fame and fortune. This is what Jesus warned us. And and I'm, I'm not just talking about the people out there. I'm talking about even the people within the Christian community. This is what Jesus warned us about in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. He said, The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word. Choke the word. The, The word of God becomes suppressed under the the weight of all this other stuff that is around us. It's very sad, isn't it? But it's exactly what is happening today. In verses 13 to 14, he goes into self-pity. I suppose we could call it the, the victim mentality. Verses 13 to 14, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. So these verses describe this, this downward spiral for Asaph. At the heart of his struggle is self-pity, this, this victimhood, which is at work in, in, in a lot of people like, like a virus. Why me, O oh Lord? Why? In verse 13, it's this, it becomes this spiritual crisis for he concludes that his walk of faith, that trusting, that following God wholeheartedly, it appears to have been a waste of time. 
The clean in heart goes back to verse 1. It's the same as the pure in heart. He knows that God is good to the people with pure hearts, but experience tells him otherwise. While the wicked move from success to success, he feels being plagued and punished. Today we would say that when those wealthy people have physical struggles, they can afford the best treatment and medical care, while the rest are forced to queue up in a public system, if there is even a public health system. So he starts to seriously doubt the value of staying pure and innocent. The question can be put like this. What have I gained by being godly? Why isn't my life better? And I think it is a question that many have asked at one time or another. And as you look around with all the turmoil in our world at this time, I know that many are asking themselves this question. Where is God in all of this? The result for Asaph was turmoil, confusion, despondence. What begins with envy, with envy, he lifts his eye, he looks at the people around him, it begins with envy, and then suddenly his, his, his very own life starts to, starts to agonize and, and have self-doubt, with this inner conflict, and he actually hits rock bottom at the end of verse 14. And then in verses 15 to 16, he's witnessed to others. And this is what he says, he says, If I had said, I will speak, speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Now in, in these two verses, as he speaks to God, because he's, he's, he's still talking to God, he, he speaks to God, we see his his downward train of thought, it's, it's at least slowing down. It's not, he's not falling down, he's slowing down in his, in his downward journey. His faith, his faith is, is still under attack because he still cannot understand how the good and the bad fit together. But at the very least, he is no longer thinking about himself. Suddenly, he starts to think about others. His first responsibility, he remembers, is his basic loyalty and responsibility toward others. This is why it's important to consider your situation with everybody else. We don't live in a, in a vacuum, right? More specifically, he's concerned here for God's children, the family of God. He, he, he simply cannot just open up um, about his doubts, about his struggles, about slipping away and say everything he is feeling at the time to other believers. He felt it improper to simply vent on the social media uh, 3,000 years ago about the struggles of his faith. Because a lot of people just wouldn't understand the context. And this would have affected the confidence in God or those who are perhaps still young in the faith, those who are not grounded in the word. 
And it would have been an act of betrayal as he would be talking and arguing against God virtually in front of everybody and he will be saying the same type of things that the wicked, the arrogant, the pagans are saying. And he said, I can't do that. So this struggle, he says, this was oppressive to me. Now, if, if you're going through some of these things now, um, it's best to get on a one-to-one discussion. Don't vent in front of everybody else. If you're really struggling, I'm, you know, as as, as a pastor, I'm more than more than open to talk about some of these things. We need to come. You see, what I can help you do is is I've I've, I've seen a lot of these waves, a lot of these struggles come and go over years. I've lived a few decades on this world. And a lot of things have come and gone. What seems really important now, you know, the, the, the tyranny of the, of, the, of the instant of this time, will be something different in the future. But God is still the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. There is an avenue for discussion. There is an avenue to talk about the important things in our faith. We are dealing with matters of eternity here. This is why this is important. So what is the turning point for Asaph? Well, the turning point comes to him in verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. And here is the the turning point in the whole psalm. It's good to know that Asaph's crisis of faith does not drive him into further, further isolation, but instead it draws him into worship, draws him to God. So Asaph enters the sanctuary and once more he feels his place is there at home with God, with God's people. He moves away from isolation and into community. And this is the place to hear God's word, to to be reminded of his word, to hear it read, to to come to the truth, to come to life, to, to sing his praises, to pray to his name. Before, he could only see the prosperity of the wicked. But from here on, until the end of the psalm, God replaces that ungodly picture that he had before and suddenly God himself becomes his only vision. I like the way that the message translation has it. It really nails it when it says, it says, then I saw the whole picture. Then I saw the whole picture. Isn't that great? It's a great expression. By seeing God for who he really is, opens our eyes to see and evaluate everything else around us with true light. We need to shine the light of God in the darkness of this world. We see things from his perspective, with spiritual eyes, with godly wisdom. But this this is only possible if you come to him honestly, Humbly before him. And in verses 18 to 20, the eyes are opened to the illusion. 
18 to 20. And this is suddenly there's the turnaround in the way he sees things. And this is what he says about the people that he, he looked at and envied before. And he says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. So what the psalmist saw and envied in verse 3 has now shown to be nothing more than an illusion. And from verse 18 to the end of the psalm, we see his, his prayer to God in worship. Asaph is, is given a perception of his God in the sanctuary. Some, perhaps this is something that he has never seen or, or appreciated before. But suddenly he takes ownership of this and, and he changes the outlook on, on his life and his own circumstances. So he begins to understand his his misconception of the wicked and sees the reality that they are actually they are actually the ones on slippery ground and not him. The apparent power, the, the apparent freedom and stability of the wicked is nothing more than an illusion. Their fate is actually sad. It's it's terrible. We should actually pray for them, be concerned for them, not jealous for what they have, not desiring what they have, because it's all fantasy. Since all they have is the material world, we should actually not begrudge their lot. Our lot is with God. It's in, that's where our treasure is. Their lot will be lost. It has no lasting value. But as we commit ourselves to God, Whatever we do in his name has eternal value. In verses 21 to 22, we see repentance. And this is what he says. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, he says, I was senseless and ignorant. That takes a lot to recognize that, doesn't it? I was a brute beast before you. I was behaving like an animal. With his eyes opened, he comes to a place of repentance for his doubt, his envy, his self-pity. Notice the progression in his thought pattern. In verse 2, he was concerned about himself, almost stumbling in his walk before God. In verse 15, he is concerned for, for other people and the danger of betraying the community of faith. But now, it is God and Asaph alone, and he confesses his sin before God. Because by contemplating God's holiness, he is confronted with his own sinfulness. Um, how good is your heart? Well, do you really want to see how dark your heart is? Simply shine the light of Christ on it. There's the old uh, saying that says that Human beauty is only skin deep. And there is truth to that. Beauty is only skin deep because you go any deeper than that and you get overtaken by the ugliness of the human heart. You see, on their own, the external circumstances really create tensions in our heart. All these external circumstances, the, the upheaval and everything that is happening around us, these are external circumstances and they rarely create tensions in our heart unless there was already something in our heart with which 
it, it clicks. Rather, the external issues work like a spark to light the toxic fumes of envy and bitterness already in the human heart. That's why the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. This is what exacerbates the problem and causes grief. We need to repent of that. Humble ourselves before God. In verse 23, God's presence. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me, you hold me by my right hand. Now this, this first word in verse 23 is very significant. I'm always with you because you're the one that's holding me. We are sinners, yet our God is a God of forgiveness, a God of restoration. And the reality is that we are all forgiven sinners. All the redeeming love of God is poured into that very significant or insignificant us. And because of that, we become significant in his eyes. Now Asaph sees God in a full blaze of glory as he continues in prayer. And it is no longer a prayer of confession, but now it becomes a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. He is grateful for the joy of God's active presence in his life. The, the wicked, you see, they may have everything they need in this, in this life, everything material in this life, but because they do not have the Lord, death for them means destruction, it means eternal punishment. But for those of us who have been saved through personal faith in Jesus Christ, death has lost its sting. It is a defeated enemy. We do not fear it. Sure, we continue to experience sorrow and suffering on earth, but we have been given the complete assurance of God's abiding presence in our lives. He is with us and will meet all our needs in sickness, in failure, and despair and frustration, sorrow, poverty, whatever it might be, he is with us. And lastly, the personal relationship with God from verses 23 to 28. And this is how he concludes this beautiful psalm. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. I love those words. The prayer in these verses is more than a, than a prayer with good theology, but it reflects the beauty of a personal relationship with God. Despite everything he has seen, he has seen, and everything that he has been through, Asaph now knows that God holds his hand, gives him counsel, he guides him, and will one day the, at the end of his journey, will receive him into glory. It's not just knowing, you see, it's not just knowing about God or knowing about the Bible or what the Bible says about God. It is that to be involved, for us to be in a personal relationship with the maker of the universe. And it changes our whole perspective. As the old saying goes, it's not what you know, but who you know, what matters. And uh, 
we know God because he first knew us. And verses 25 to 26 are so encouraging, isn't it? Um, I know that for many, this is one of their favourite verses in Scripture. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You know how he desired all those material things before? Suddenly he comes to God and says, well, actually, I don't want any of that. Earth has nothing I desire beside you. And then my flesh and my heart may fail, and they will. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion Not just now, not just my little piece of a pizza pie now, but for eternity. Forever. And the reason why you and I want to go to heaven, it sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? But the reason we want to be there is because we want to be with our Saviour and Redeemer. And we want to be where He is. For that to happen... We need to start that relationship with God right now. If you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, you better do it soon. Time is always running out and it's running out even faster now. You need to start the relationship, that friendship with Jesus now in order to spend eternity with him. Because heaven is simply the eternal continuation of the friendship or the relationship that started on earth. Earlier, earlier, earlier on, the, the psalmist feared he could not speak to others because he might discourage them, right? But now he cannot stop speaking and telling of God to the others. He wants to tell them, he wants to share his testimony with others so that others will be able to glorify God with him. What begins in verse 1 as a detached, somewhat detached doctrine True as it was, but it was here in the head, but not in the heart, is now, in verse 28, is fully owned. But as for me, it is good, as for me, it is good to be near God. Before, it was a general statement about Israel, but now it becomes personal. He is my God. Even in the midst of the worst possible struggles, that we can imagine. Let us know, let us be assured that God is there with us. Even when life does not make sense, God is there. That nearness to God does not exclude us, does not protect us in a way from the sorrow and suffering here and now. We, we know it. We've been praying for people in our community who are, who are sick, who are suffering cancer. But for those of us who know God because God knows us who are friends with God there's more this life is very short eternity awaits let us continue to worship the Lord our God for we know that our our struggles are real but they are temporal they are only here for a very short time and then eternity awaits in his presence May God bless us as we as we come before Him. Let me uh, let me now lead you in prayer as we pray before God. 
Let us pray. Lord, at this time we would say, thank you for being our Saviour. The Saviour who is always there. The friend. The Lord. The one who carries us in the good times and the bad. Forgive us when our faith starts to lose that eternal perspective, that perspective that we find on your throne of grace. Keep our feet steady on you at all times, firm on the path that leads to glory. At this time, Lord, we would pray for those whose faith is struggling, whose faith has been severely tested with all that is happening in our world. Protect your children, dear Lord, from the works of the evil one, who is always seeking to destroy your work in this world. We plead, we plead, Lord, that you would deliver us from evil. Create in us a hunger for truth found only in your word. Keep us firmly established in the community of faith, Lord, may your people continue to encourage, to spur each other on to greater faith. And convict us with a new appreciation for everlasting life in you, a life that the world does not know or understand. And give us, Lord, the assurance that through all circumstances, your love is great. In Jesus' name.